Good morning and thank you for tuning in again. I hope this video finds that you and your families are doing well. My name is David Creech and I'm with the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can see our times of services on the screen here and you can also check out our website at www.godsredeemed.org. Today we're going to be continuing our study in the New Testament book of Acts. Last week we completed an overview of the first 12 chapters of Acts and then jumped right into chapter 1. We spent some time talking about the significance of the resurrection of Jesus and in particular how the resurrection of Jesus was not something that happened in a vacuum. It's not something that happened under a shroud of mystery where, where maybe only a few people were privy to it. No, this was a, a spectacular, uh, out-in-the-open series of events occurring over a period of 40 days, as we see here in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, with 12 eyewitnesses mentioned here, the apostles, and uh, more than 500 eyewitnesses mentioned over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6. And this was done with many infallible proofs. Now, one correction uh, I wanted to make from last week's class. When I went back and watched the video, I, I realized that I'd made an incorrect comment about Jesus being crucified during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I stated that that feast was the week leading up to the Passover feast. Well, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a, a week-long feast associated with Passover, but it was not the week leading up to Passover, but the week immediately following Passover. Now, Jesus did eat the Passover meal with his apostles on the evening prior to his crucifixion, so it doesn't change the point I was trying to make, that many of the Jews who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2, that we'll talk about this morning, would have also been in Jerusalem at the time Jesus was crucified. If, if you're interested in reading more about the Jewish Passover feast, as well as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you can do so in Exodus chapter 12 and Leviticus chapter 23. There are a, a couple of other points I want to uh, highlight here in Acts chapter 1 before we move on to chapter 2. Uh, and the first is baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does the Bible mean by baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, Luke records the words of Jesus in uh, verse 5, where Jesus said, let me just pull that up so you can read it. Kind of get verses 5 and 8 on here for you. So in verse 5, Jesus said to the apostles, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And Jesus also indicated in verse 8 that this baptism would be accompanied by some kind of power when that happened. I want us to note, first of all, who this promise is to. Who is it that Jesus said would receive this Holy Spirit baptism? Well, let's start with verse 8, where the promise is made, and work our way backward looking for the antecedent, that is, the preceding object 
of the personal pronoun you there in verse 8. And so we see in verse 8, but you shall receive power. Uh, who's the you? Verse 7, he said to them. Who's the them? Verse 6, when they had come together. Who's the they? Uh, we see verse 5 and verse 4, all of these personal pronouns, and we go all the way back up to verse 2, and we see that he is addressing the apostles. All these personal pronouns in verses 3 through 8 refer back to that object in verse 2, the apostles. So was this baptism of the Holy Spirit promised to everyone? No, it was promised to the apostles. And that's going to be very important in our understanding of what happens to them and why it happens to them. Or in other words, the reason it happens to them. Incidentally, we're going to spend a great deal of time in this class talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we're going to take what I'm calling a slight detour here. And uh, why, do we, why do we need to do that? Well, the, the two words, Holy Spirit, are used together almost 50 times just in the book of Acts. And then just the word Spirit alone is used an additional 20 or so times where it is understood to be <clears throat> the Holy Spirit. So it's really important that we have a good understanding about the Holy Spirit moving forward in this study, beginning right here in chapter 1. <clears throat> and by the way, if you're using an older King James Version of the Bible, it will use the term Holy Ghost instead of Holy Spirit. And that kind of begs the question, you know, which is it, ghost or spirit? Well, I would say that neither are incorrect. The word ghost or spirit is simply a, a, a translation of the Latin word spiritus, meaning breath. If we go back to the original Greek, it is the word pneuma, meaning to blow or to breathe. Uh, we may recognize that word pneuma as the prefix, for instance, of the word pneumonia, which has to do with breathing, specifically the functioning of the lungs. And that same Greek word pneuma is sometimes translated in the New Testament as simply wind. Again, something that is very real, but unseen. You might say, well, wait a minute, I can see the wind. No, what we see are the effects of the wind. That's a very important distinction. Uh, but the wind itself is just air moving around. We, don't, we can't see air molecules. Each of us has a spirit within us, also called a soul. It's, it's very real, but intangible, unseen. <clears throat> In some places, the Bible talks about evil spirits. Again, very real but unseen. So is it wrong to use the word ghost to speak of something that is very real but intangible, unseen? Um, no, it's not wrong. I prefer, and this is just my preference, to use the term Holy Spirit rather than Holy Ghost. And maybe that's just because in our society today the word ghost tends to conjure up all kinds of thoughts or images that just don't seem to fit with what I know about this part of the Godhead. But again, that's just my preference. Uh, which begs another question and, and another slight detour, but a necessary one, I think. What do I mean when I use this word Godhead? Well, let's turn over to Matthew 28 and verse 19. 
looking at that. Uh, you may have heard the word Trinity before, per perhaps the term uh, Holy Trinity. That word Trinity just means a group of three or three of something combined into one. You, you might find this hard to believe, but the word Trinity is not found in the Bible at all. It's, it's not a Bible word. However, we, we do know what people mean when they talk about the Holy Trinity. They're talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the one Godhead, the same three persons mentioned by Jesus here in Matthew 28 and verse 19. Now, unlike the word uh, Trinity, <clears throat> the word Godhead is a Bible word. Let's turn over to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, For in him, who's the him? Well, we can scroll up to the previous verse there in verse 8 and see that we're talking about, Paul's talking about Christ here in his letter to the Colossians. It said, In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, in the person of Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, dwelled in bodily form. So uh, back to our uh, uh, original detour about the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I've sometimes heard the Holy Spirit referred to as the silent partner of the Godhead. Well, there may be some things about the Holy Spirit that seem mysterious to us, but the Holy Spirit is anything but silent, as we shall see. Others might say that the Holy Spirit is the unseen partner of the Godhead. Well, maybe we haven't seen the Holy Spirit with our own eyes, but just like the wind, we can see the effects of the Holy Spirit. We can open our Bibles and read about the Holy Spirit, and we can see through the eyes of faith the many ways that the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of the disciples of Jesus and how the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to work in our lives today. Let me also take this time to say something about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit was to do, the, the role of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we're going to talk about that by looking at a few verses. Um, first of all, the Holy Spirit is not a thing, but a divine person. I think that's on the next slide, yes. So let's look at uh, John 14, 26. If you have it in your Bibles, and join me in turning to that. In John 14, 26, Jesus is speaking to his apostles and says, but the helper, now that's the word here in the New King James Version. If you have a, a an older King James Version, it'll say, comforter here. The uh, the New International Version, some other translations use the word advocate. <clears throat> but the helper, the, the comforter, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And I want you to note all the personal pronouns used here that I've got kind of highlighted in green there. Um, here and in the following passages, okay, he will teach you all things. Let's jump down to uh, one chapter later, to John fifteen twenty six. 
Jesus is talking about the helper again uh, and referring to that helper as the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father and saying that he will uh, would testify of Jesus. And John uh, 16, and let's get a verses 7 through 13 on here. <clears throat> here we go. And in John 16 and verse 7, Jesus says, If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. In verse 8, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. In verse 13, uh, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. I think you get the point, right? All of these personal pronouns require a person, not a thing. I also want to note the role of the Holy Spirit in these passages. And let's see if we can back up again to John 14, 26. <clears throat> Notice there in John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit was to teach them. It says, teach you. Who's the you? The apostles. To teach the apostles all things and to bring all things to the apostles' remembrance. And, and then those two roles are pretty obvious from this passage, but what may not be so obvious goes back to the original Greek word for helper there that you see there. That's actually the, the Greek word parakletos. It's transliterated into English as the word paraclete in some cases. For instance, if you have a Dewey Reams Bible, it will say, but the paraclete. And maybe you've heard the, the term the holy paraclete before. And that word paraclete just simply means an intercessor or consoler. And so, uh, therefore, it's translated using a number of different English words. Advocate, comforter, helper. All these words accurately describe the role of the Holy Spirit. Let's jump back down to uh, John 15, 26 again. And we see the role of the Holy Spirit was to testify of Jesus, the last part of that verse. And then let's look at 16 and verse 8. The, another role of the Holy Spirit was to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then verse 13, to guide them, the apostles, into all truth and to tell them, the apostles, of things to come. You know, if, if we can understand what these passages right here are saying about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is a divine person and that the Holy Spirit's role is to teach the apostles all things, to serve as an advocate or intercessor with the Father, to be a comforter to them in the absence of Jesus himself, to testify of Jesus, to convict the world of sin, to guide the apostles into all truth, and to tell the world of, or to tell them of things to come. If we can understand all that, then we'll be well on our way to understanding 
the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, years ago, I heard someone say something that I have found very useful when it comes to thinking about the separate roles of the Godhead. And that is that God the Father planned it. God the Son, Jesus, accomplished it. And God the Holy Spirit revealed it, confirmed it, and sealed it. Now more on this as we go, but because it seems like there's a lot of confusion over what the Holy Spirit did and how the Holy Spirit did it in the first century as compared to what the Holy Spirit does and how the Holy Spirit does it in our century uh, today. Some would say there's no difference, but we're going to see that there is a difference. Uh, in a nutshell, if the Holy Spirit's role in the first century was to reveal things, to, to guide the apostles into all truth, <clears throat> then it cannot be true that the Holy Spirit continues to reveal new things today, uh, as some people would claim. So think about it. How can the Holy Spirit guide people into new truth today if he guided the apostles in the first century into all truth? Someone once said of spiritual things, if it's something new, it can't be true. And if it's something true, it can't be new. So how did the Holy Spirit reveal the truth? Well, he revealed all truth to the apostles who taught it and had it written down. They either wrote it down themselves, Matthew, or John, Peter, and Paul are good examples of that, or someone close to them wrote it down. Uh, John Mark, whom uh, we typically know of as simply Mark, and Luke would be good examples of that. How did the Holy Spirit confirm the truth? through miracles and signs and wonders. Uh, more on that later. How did the Holy Spirit seal the truth? Well, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, let's turn over there to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Uh, this is a letter that, that was, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. Paul, in this letter, expresses astonishment that some of the Galatians had turned away to what he called a different gospel. And he warns them by saying, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now that word accursed comes from the Greek word anathema, which is the highest form of condemnation that one can receive. And then he uh, goes on to repeat himself in verse 9. As uh, we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. Consider also the words of the Holy Spirit through Jude's letter. Uh, that would be the, the epistle or the letter or the book just before the book of Revelation, which is the very last book in the New Testament, um, and of course the last book in the Bible. There in Jude, there's only one chapter, verse 3, um, 
<clears throat> Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Again, if there is only one gospel, and, and Paul would refer to that in Romans 1.16, the gospel as God's power to save. If there is only one gospel, and if the Holy Spirit guided the apostles into all truth concerning that gospel, and if they were to contend earnestly for the faith that was delivered once, then that leaves out any need whatsoever for future revelations. In other words, the revelation of the gospel was sealed. And let me appeal to you today, uh, wherever you are in your spiritual growth or whatever group or denomination you may worship with and study with, if that group is teaching anything other than what you find in the pages of the New Testament, you should be very careful. Ask a lot of questions and make sure the answers fit with Scripture. Now, some people today would teach that ordinary people like, like you and me cannot interpret the Scriptures for ourselves. They would say that we must rely on someone else, the, the church, for instance, to do that for us. But uh, you know what? Over in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, we see Paul talking to Jews in the, in the synagogue in a, a town called Berea. And you know what those Berean Jews were doing? It says they were searching the scriptures daily to confirm the things that Paul was saying. We need to do the same thing today, whenever someone teaches us. Now, that may mean spending some extra time and you know, studying our Bibles, but look what Paul said to Timothy over in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. A very familiar passage to many of you. And Paul says, to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God. Some translations would say, study to show yourselves approved to God. But I really like the word diligent here in the New King James Version because it, that word indicates persistence, you know, a, a constant and earnest effort. <clears throat> back to our conversation about the Holy Spirit, kind of back to our first detour again. Uh, understandably, it is easy to get confused when it comes to the various activities of the Holy Spirit. We, we hear or read phrases like baptism of the Holy Spirit and gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit and the gift singular, of the Holy Spirit, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We read about fruits of the Spirit and so forth. And these are not difficult to understand if we treat each of these separately in the proper context. It's when we chunk all of that into a blender, so to speak, try to combine them, that it's easy to get confused. <clears throat> Let's return our conversation back to Acts uh, chapters 1 and 2 concerning baptism of the Holy Spirit. We already talked about who the promise was to. And it should be very clear the promise was uh, 
it was one that Jesus made to the apostles. But uh, a lot of people talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit today as if it is something that everyone experiences, something that every uh, Christian experiences. In some cases, people would say that a person is only saved if they've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, just as the apostles were. Some would go even further to say that you're not saved unless you have proven that baptism of the Holy Spirit through some outward manifestation, uh, like what is often called speaking in tongues. Well, I would challenge you about that to, to read through the entire New Testament and look for every instance of Holy Spirit baptism. And I'm going to give you the answer, but I still challenge you to look for yourselves and not just put all your trust in what I am telling you. And what you will find is that there are only two instances of Holy Spirit baptism. And both instances had a very specific reason attached to them. So what are those two instances? Well, we see the first one right here in Acts chapter 2, which was the fulfillment of the promise we read about in Acts chapter 1. The second occurrence is over in Acts chapter 10. Let me just give you a taste of that real quick. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 44, where we see the first Gentile converts. And we see that Peter is speaking. He's, he's with the household of Cornelius. And it says the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. <coughs> Excuse me. There in verse 44. And, and then it says that those of the circumcision, the Jews that were with Peter, were astonished because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And, of course, verse 46 talks about how uh, they were speaking in tongues and so forth. And we, we learn even more about this over in Acts chapter 11. Uh, we'll touch on that in a minute, where, where Peter is defending himself to the other apostles back in Jerusalem over what had happened at the household of Cornelius. And let me point out something here. Despite having received power from the Holy Spirit back in Acts chapter 2, it is uh, apparent that the knowledge of the apostles was not perfect. And, and what I mean by that is not that they were wrong about what they did know, uh, about what had been revealed to them, but that what they did know was not complete at that point. Because you see, up to this point, the Jews, even the Jewish Christians, still believed that Israel was God's chosen race and that only the descendants of Abraham could be saved. For, for many hundreds of years, they had misinterpreted the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And, and so that, that more complete knowledge that Jesus referred to as all truth was incrementally revealed by the Holy Spirit over time until such a time that the Apostle Paul could say to uh, Timothy in what was perhaps his last letter, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, until such a time that Paul, Paul could say to Timothy that all Scripture was given by inspiration of God so that the man of God, it says in verse 17, could be complete, 
and thoroughly equipped for, what does it say? Every good work. Now think about that. If we have been equipped for every good work, then if something is a good work, it'll be found there in the scriptures. If something is not found in the scriptures, then it cannot be a good work. And until such a time that the Apostle Paul could chastise the Galatians for believing something different, something foreign, something that the Holy Spirit had never revealed to the Apostles and which they had never taught. And until such a time that Jude could say that the gospel was delivered once and for all. And the point I want to make here with, with this second instance of Holy Spirit baptism is this. We'll turn over to Acts chapter 11, right around verse 15, where Peter says, And as I began to speak, now again, this is Peter sort of uh, defending himself to the apostles back in Jerusalem about what happened at the household of Cornelius. And Peter says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Who's the them? The believers of Cornelius' household. As upon us at the beginning. Notice that Peter doesn't say the Holy Spirit fell upon them as he does for every believer. You know, many thousands of believers have been added to the church between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 11, where we're reading here. Yet, Peter takes the time to point out to the apostles in Jerusalem that what happened at the household of Cornelius was something momentous. And it was the same thing that happened to the apostles at the beginning. What happened at the beginning? Baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And of course, there was a specific reason attached to this momentous event, and that was to show, to prove that salvation had come to the Gentiles as well. So that's just one example that I, that I wanted uh, you to keep in mind, an example of where people sometimes get confused about the various activities of the Holy Spirit. And we'll cover more of these as we go through our study in Acts. So <clears throat> just kind of uh, summarizing Acts chapter 1, we, we see the promise of the Holy Spirit there in Acts 1 which, remember, Jesus said would come with power. And at that point, we don't know what kind of power, just that it would come with power. Then we see the ascension of Jesus there in Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. Let's go ahead and pull that up. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to point out about that. The, the apostles are standing there gazing up into the heavens. Uh, I mean, think about it. If, if you and I had just witnessed Jesus ascending up into the air and disappearing into a cloud, wouldn't we be doing the same thing? I think, I think that mentally I'd be trying to process what had just happened. Uh, I mean, even with today's technology, with airplanes and balloons and jetpacks and things that make people fly, a person doesn't just lift off the ground without any of those things, and rise up into the air. So, yeah, I think I would have been sort of stupefied, you know, trying to process that. And I might have even been wondering to myself, is he, is he coming back? Or is that it? 
But it says in verse 10 that two men stood by them in white apparel. Now, Luke doesn't say that they were angels, but I think it's a pretty good assumption that they were. Uh, after all, at the tomb of Jesus, if we go back and look at the gospel accounts, they describe uh, similar men, either in white apparel or in dazzling apparel. And John's account specifically states that they were angels. But at any rate, uh, these two men in white apparel ask the question in verse 11, why are you standing here gazing up into the heavens? And then they pronounce that Jesus would return the same way they saw him leave. And Paul tells us the same thing in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Both Matthew and Mark, in their gospel accounts, record the words of Jesus saying that the, the Son of Man, and that's, um, that's Jesus, would be seen coming in the clouds with great glory and great power. The book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. And as has already been mentioned, the selection of Matthias um, to, to bring the number of apostles back to 12 sort of completes that first chapter. Okay, here in Acts chapter 2, <clears throat> just a few more minutes and we'll wrap this up. Uh, let's look at Acts chapter 2 in the first four verses. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Who's the they? Well, we could go backward and see that uh, it's still talking about the apostles here. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, you know, and it, it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this sounds a lot like the promise Jesus made in the first chapter that they, the apostles, would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. And with that would, would come power. And we're seeing part of that here. There's a mighty rushing wind. There are divided tongues like fire resting on each of them. They suddenly have the ability to speak with other tongues. And if all that isn't power, I don't know what is. Uh, two other things I want to point out here. Time frame. Uh, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, not many days from now. Now remember, Jesus was crucified at Passover. What we're seeing here in Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. And recall that Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. And after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to the apostles and more than 500 people over a period of 40 days. So the events taking place here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1 were no more than 10 days after the events in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. And speaking in tongues. 
Now, we'll talk some more about this later, but, but many people today have this idea that speaking in tongues is some kind of unintelligible language that, that perhaps only God understands or that the angels understand. This comes from a misunderstanding of the purpose, the, the reason for speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues was always the ability the Holy Spirit gave someone to speak in an existing language that they could not previously speak. And, and this power came through the Holy Spirit in, in one of three ways. The apostles received it on the day of Pentecost. That, that was part of the power that Jesus promised. The, the subsequent laying on of the hands of the apostles. In other words, the apostles and only the apostles had the power to lay their hands on someone and transfer certain gifts of the Holy Spirit. One such gift was the ability to speak in tongues. And we'll, we'll talk about that more later as well as some of the other gifts. And the household of Cornelius received it in Acts chapter 10. We already talked about that. Um, those that believe in speaking in tongues today, certain, certain Pentecostal and charismatic groups, often appeal to Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. Let me just pull that up so you can look at it. Where it says that the, the Spirit, and this is understood to be the Holy Spirit, helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, all this tells us is that because we don't always know how we ought to pray or what we ought to say, that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. There's nothing here about speaking in tongues. In fact, it specifically mentions groanings which cannot be uttered. Anytime I've heard someone uh, making the claim that they spoke in tongues, it was something that was uttered. Anyway, right here in Acts chapter 2, um, verse 5 and following, and let's bring that back up. <clears throat> we see the apostles putting together, or, or excuse me, putting, putting that power and that ability to speak in tongues, to speak in foreign languages, to work. And if we look here in verse 5, it says, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. So why were there devout men from every nation under heaven in Jerusalem at this time? Well, you know the answer to that. We've already talked about it. They were there for Pentecost. And verse 6, and when this sound occurred, well, what sound? That sound of a mighty rushing wind mentioned in verse 2. Then it says, then it says they were confused when they came together. What were they confused about? Because everyone heard them, the apostles, speak in his own language, in their own language. So first, they are confused because they heard these apostles speaking in their own language. And, and then verse 7 uh, tells us that the confusion turned to amazement as they realized that these men were simple Galileans. 
Another way to put it is that they were uneducated men. How could they speak in all these different languages? And that was truly something to be amazed about. Uh, no doubt many of these devout men may have still spoken the Hebrew language, but they would have all spoken the language of the nations where they were born. And what nations are we talking about? Well, um, we can look in verses 9 through 11 there and, and basically see a laundry list of all of those nations. Look, um, the speaking in tongues that we see here and, and elsewhere in the New Testament was not some kind of gibberish. It was not a language of spiritual ecstasy. It was not some utterance of the Spirit that only God could understand. It was a miraculous event where uneducated men were able to speak in a different language and be understood by people from the nations that spoke those languages. Now, verses 14 through 39, or what we sometimes call Peter's sermon, and that's the way it certainly it's labeled in, in, in my Bible here. It, it looks to me like all of the apostles were preaching the wonderful works of God in, in various languages. But it is Peter's sermon that gets highlighted here for us. Uh, he, he begins by essentially saying, look, what you are witnessing today is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And then he says in verse 22, let me pull that up. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested, that is proven or demonstrated by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. <laughs> Peter is saying many of you witnessed these things, so you know what I'm talking about. And then he goes on to say in verse 23 how that same Jesus had been unlawfully convicted and crucified. Peter appealed to Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah and, and helped these Jews to connect the dots and, and ultimately to, to realize that those prophecies were fulfilled in one man, in Jesus Christ. And in verse 36, we hear... Uh, Peter's stinging rebuke. Let me scroll down to that so you can see it as we finish up here. Uh, we hear Peter's stinging rebuke to these men. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And we're out of time today. Thank you for watching or, or listening, whichever the case may be. Tune in next week, and Lord willing, we'll get a chance to see how the crowd reacted to Peter's sermon. We'll spend some time talking about that and hopefully get through chapter three as well. Thank you.